PMI Online, JBA here, and welcome to another episode of Diversity and Mentorship in Investing, a limited series where we chat with some incredible angels, VCs, and entrepreneurs about diversity and investing each week. Are you looking to start or grow your startup but feel like you can't get to that next level? Well, DMI listeners, we have special private communities and a startup incubator specifically geared for you. Visit VentureSeed.com forward slash incubator to apply and join the number of growing funded startup businesses. Incubators are one of the best ways to get honest and direct feedback to strengthen the possibility to get funding. So apply now as there are a limited number of spots available. VentureSeed.com. Now, get ready to chat with our featured guest, Dr. Elizabeth Claiborne. Dr. Claiborne, are you ready to have a conversation about diversity and mentorship in investing? I absolutely am. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So Dr. Claiborne is an emergency physician faculty member at the University of Maryland School of Medicine with an academic focus on ethics, health policy, and innovation entrepreneurship. She developed a novel nosebleed device, NASA Clip, as a resident and in 2015 was awarded the NSF I-Corps grant, which helped to launch her company. Dr. Claiborne has raised $1.1 million in funding as of December 2022 and was awarded an NSF SBIR Phase 1 grant for 256 k to assist with the development of her device. NASA Clip will be launching the Class 1 version of the device into the market in 2023. And she's been also featured on several national interview networks such as CNN, MSNBC, and TEDx discussing COVID and health equity and ethics issues. She looks forward to continuing her career as a practicing emergency physician, innovator, and leader in the healthcare policy and reform. You can follow her on Twitter and Instagram. So Dr. Claiborne, what I want to do is just start the conversation and, you know, take a step back, fill in some gaps about growing up and what made you the woman you are today. Sure, um, Jeremy. So it's really interesting when I think about how far I've come and how different my life and career has ended up given, you know, my humble beginnings and what I thought I was going to do when I was a little girl. And really, I was born and raised in Denver, Colorado. Um, I'm the eldest of four girls and uh, my parents are an interracial couple. So I'm biracial. My dad's black, African-American and my mom's like mostly Irish. So growing up in Denver, being biracial wasn't that big of a deal. Actually, it's one of the cities in the US that people may not know this has one of the highest percentage of interracial couples and did so in the 80s when I grew up. But I do remember it being distinct. And when Jungle Fever came out, they came and did a whole docuseries on our family and wanted to make sure they even got pictures of my mom doing our hair. And so Mm. I had, I think, what I would consider to be a pretty safe and stable upbringing. Both of my parents are college educated, but I did go to public schools um, my entire life. And my parents made a really um, good job in investing and making sure that we understood um, how privileged we were really to grow up in a stable home, um, value education, and have a family surrounding us who loved us. That said, I certainly don't think I was born with a silver spoon in my life, um, in my mouth. And so I think I was pretty hungry when it came to academics and wanting to pursue, you know, uh, a professional career 
career early on. Um, my mom was a nurse. And so if anything, she would always uh, encourage me to pursue all of my interests, but I don't think she actually really expected me to grow up to be a physician because she also knew the difficult side of healthcare and how challenging it can be to help people in a system that's so broken. That said, I do think that I had those kind of early seeds of what it meant to be uh, a person of service to understand health and to really be able to enjoy something uh, that I work at. So have a career not only that pays the bills, but one that I thrive doing and enjoy doing. So from growing up in Denver, I actually went on to go to college at Duke University. So I'm a Blue Devil and I designed my own major there in medical ethics and religion. So that was the first kind of uh, what I would call atypical step in my journey and my career path that I would bring up. And I really did that because I enjoyed philosophy classes, but still wanted to be pre-med. And so I somehow melded together all of these courses to create this unique experience. And I think it was really formative and, and certainly developed me, in, me into the physician that I am today, since I often can look at patients as human beings and not really just disease entities. And that started way back, you know, when I was an undergrad. I did a two-year research fellowship uh, at the National Institutes of Health before going to medical school. And I studied race, ethnicity, and genetics, which I thought was really interesting as someone who has a biracial background since it was right when Bidil came out, which was the first race-based therapeutic uh, hypertension drug that had a label for Black patients. And it was very controversial at the time since race, of course, is a social construct, but a lot of people attach certain... Um, you know, genetic attributes to race, no matter how someone might self-identify. So those are really interesting um, times because I think uh, living in DC before I went to med school really opened my eyes to the world of health policy and how incredibly um, influential our policy and even politics are and how we're able to take care of patients in the healthcare system. And again, something that I think really prepped me to be a successful physician and understand the patient, not just um, by their background and social context, but the entire kind of community that they're growing up um, in and how that might impact what they um, have going on with their health. I then went to Case Western uh, for medical school. I did a dual degree and got a master's in bioethics, um, kind of following up on that ethics interest, and then came back to DC for residency at GW in emergency medicine. And it was actually when I was a resident that I first came up with the idea for Nasoclip. So Nasoclip is a medical device for treating nosebleeds that works on both adults and children. And I consider it to be the band-aid of, of nosebleeds. It essentially provides external nasal compression combined with medicated sponges that go in the nude the nose. And it really empowers anyone anywhere to stop nosebleeds fast. And I came up with it because I couldn't believe how many people came to the ER for nosebleeds when I was a resident. And I thought it was a problem that needed to be better solved both inside and outside of the hospital. Wow. That's interesting. And it's funny because uh, most of my family growing up, uh, even though I went to to tech and, and finance, they were in healthcare, uh, you know, anesthesiologists, nurses, doctors. So I've been around that and seen that level of service that you mentioned before, which is really uh, not just impressive, but also it's, you know, it's helpful for social communities, especially minority communities in general. And I think one of the things you mentioned, these social constructs that were exacerbated during COVID was important because I know during COVID, I think you actually were also on maternity leave. And I was just curious, you invented, I think, NASA clip or was working on it at that time. What was that journey like during during the COVID period? Because I think a lot a lot of stuff happened during that time. Yeah, um, nasal clip like nasal <laughs> instead of NASA. Um, ah, it's a nasal, nasal. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's hard because when people see NASA, they want to say NASA, of but it's it nasal clip um, like a nasal clip. 
it actually really gained a lot of momentum during COVID. And, and really what happened is I was about six months pregnant when the COVID pandemic hit. Mm. So if you can think way back to the beginning of the pandemic, this is when we did not have PPE. Testing was very difficult. I mean, it was it, it was chaos. And so for me to be pregnant, it also was a very scary time. Uh, and I actually stayed working on the front lines in a very busy underserved um, hospital in PG County, Maryland, just outside of DC, that was extremely hard hit. And um, it was one of the hardest hit hospitals in the state. And we had such a flood of sick patients that if I had left just because I was pregnant, it would have really put my colleagues in jeopardy because there were two other women at the, the same time who were all pregnant. So we oh, stayed wow. on the front lines. And that's actually how I ended up doing a lot of media because I started doing interviews at that time about what it was like to be a frontline healthcare provider and found out that I have a knack for doing, I guess, national media. And I thought that it was really important at the time, given the discrepancies and disparities that we saw in how patients were being managed with COVID, that they saw an articulate, well-educated Black female physician on TV talking about important issues. And that's really where that kind of whole media exposure started. And so I worked through the first wave, uh, delivered my second child in May of 2020, and then went on maternity leave. And while I was on maternity leave, I decided to do an accelerator program for my company. Mm -hmm. And although I had come up with Nasaclip back when I was a resident in 2015, it was a little bit on the back burner, really, just because I hadn't had the time to really uh, devote enough resources to fundraising for it, as well as kind of moving forward our prototype. But during this accelerator program with TEDCO, which is a Maryland um, state-based organization that gave me both some capital as well as executive management coaching, I really was able to gain some strides and do my first successful fundraising after that. And so I sat there with my newborn baby, like, you know, breastfeeding her during in between mm -hmm. sessions and really hustling as you will see most female and especially mother entrepreneurs do. But that's also what makes us great business owners, right? Because we're actually used to multitasking. We're used to understanding lots of problems. We're used to communicating clearly. We're used to kind of dealing with unforeseen problems. And so I feel like it has been an advantage, right? Both my background as a physician and my background as a mother and a Black woman. All of those things, I think, lend to uh, the agility that is required to be a startup founder and successful entrepreneur. So Tedco gave me my first start. And from there, uh, we were able to get enough capital to secure our kind of first major prototype and then move on to fund raising. And I did my first uh, convertible note raise in 2021 of $550,000, which was oversubscribed actually at the time. And we've had really uh, huge gains in momentum since then. Awesome. And actually, I was going to mention Teco, which I'll get to in a second, uh, based on the grant information you mentioned. Sometimes entrepreneurs look to investors or VCs as their only source of capital. Right? I have to get this you know, VC uh, funding. And we know that less than 1% are funded in that way. And so there's so many other options and sources of capital that I try to let entrepreneurs in our communities know. And I believe Tedco, you mentioned just briefly, provides grants as part of sometimes like the National Science Foundation, which I think is where you had gotten uh, that as part of that program, correct? Yeah. So I actually, so for NSF, the National Science Foundation, there's a couple of programs I did with them. Early on in 2015, I did their i program, which does give you a little bit of grant money, but really is intended to give you money to cover 
participating in the program, which is focused on customer discovery and ensuring that you have a problem that, you know, essentially people who would be willing to pay money to get solved in the solution that you are providing. And I thought that it was fortunate that I had did the NSF I-Corps uh, early on because it really helped me to, first of all, understand where my different customer segments existed, what their true value propositions are, and how I needed to make sure I was designing these Eclipse to be successful in the market that was serving them. So that was my first introduction. But um, I would say NSF i is also kind of a feeder program to some of their grants, specifically the SBIR or the um, Small Business Innovation Research Grant. And so that's what I uh, was awarded last year in March of 20, 2022. And that was for 256000 And as you said, getting 256000 of non-dilutive funds is huge, right? Mm-hmm. You're not looking at giving up equity. Not to mention that I do think getting the NSF grants kind of gives your company some notoriety, um, some kind of legitimacy within the space. And it gives you uh, a additional potential follow-on funding since they have both a phase one and phase two grant. And the phase two that I'll be applying for this year uh, is actually um, worth just over a million dollars. So this is not, you know, insignificant um, amounts of money that you can go over uh, after, especially when you're in the med tech space, uh, and that the government can support you in helping to further develop and grow your business. Yeah, that's awesome. And that reemphasizes the point I mentioned is other sources of capital. I think in this economy too, which I'll get to, <laughs> it's not, it's, it's never been easy, but it's definitely not as easy as, you know, even in the good environment. And I think you know, even yourself with an incredible pedigree, I'm sure you've seen firsthand how challenging raising capital, even in a good environment, can be. And I know you mentioned briefly you were supported, uh, I think, by you know communities and also angel investors who are interested in female and minority-owned businesses. How important do you think that, or that was for you specifically, in you know raising that capital or just growing your uh, startup? Absolutely, Journey. I think it was 100% essential. Um, early on, I did have, you know, family and friends that participated in my pre-seed round that was a convertible note. But oftentimes, as, you know, minority entrepreneurs, we don't have the same friends and family ecosystem mm-hmm. where people are writing like million dollar checks to get your business off the ground. That said, I did have a lot of colleagues who wrote $5,000 checks or came together in, um, you know, angel groups that were focused on supporting both um, black owned businesses and female founded businesses. And they were really the primary groups that supported me in my earliest days where there was the most risk, right? So when you're investing, you know, those first rounds are the most challenging because you have the most to prove they're the most risky. And, uh, you know, people basically have to put their money on the line, not sure whether or not they're going to get a return. And so because I knew that I actually purposely focused on the groups that I thought believed in me because you know, even though I know Nasa Clip can be successful, I had all the market research. I had a very thorough business plan. I understood my market. I had done customer discovery and basically kind of dotted all my I's and crossed all my T's when it came to my business plan. Ultimately, people are investing in you, mm-hmm. you know, as a founder. And so those groups early on um, tend to, to believe in me a little bit more. And, and it does, I think, sometimes have to do with a little bit of unconscious bias that exists potentially in other investment groups. And uh, I had someone early on in one of my um, organizations that supported me, the Impact Seat, which is focused on supporting female founders, share with me a statistics that was really jarring at the time. And, and she said basically that uh, if my white male counterpart that's raising money usually has to talk to about seven people in order to get a mm-hmm. turn or a yes on an investment, whereas someone who like me who was a Ten black female 
had to talk to 70, as in seven zero Mm -hmm. different organizations or people to get a yes. And so it's definitely still was an uphill battle. I think that I didn't have to deal with numbers that were that, um, you know, jarring, but I certainly did have to talk to a lot of people in order to convince them. But once you get momentum, I would say after that first round, the second note was easier. And now I'm gearing up for a $4 million seed raise. And I would say it I, ironically, it seems to be getting a little easier versus harder, even though the numbers are getting bigger. Yeah. And actually, I was going to mention that statistic of the the 10 to or the 10 times 7 to 10 ratio. And I guess for the you know, the new um, entrepreneurs and minority, especially female entrepreneurs listening, you know, what are some of the keys maybe for them to get that first investor other than, you know, perseverance, due diligence, et cetera? What would you, maybe some one or two things you'd recommend? Yeah. So I would first be really strategic about who you're talking to. You need to know your audience, right? So if you're talking to an investment group, you need to have already done the research. You know, are you the type of company that they invest in? Is it, you know, mainstream within their portfolio? Is it on the periphery? Do you have an in there? Like contacts always are still a big deal. And so even though you may not know someone directly, you still should be networking to your max capacity and see if somebody within your network can make a more personal introduction to whoever you're talking to. Cause I think that carries you a lot further. They're maybe a little bit more willing to listen to you early on if they don't know who you are, or what you're all about. And I, you know, utilized all those assets in the beginning. But I would also heavily focus on, you know, groups that you think are going are more likely to give you a yes. So a yes, either because they're used to investing in your type of business or a yes because they want to invest in you as a founder, being either a minority or, you know, a woman. And so I I really implore people to focus on those things early on. And then don't necessarily, you know, look down at any other opportunities. There were a lot of pitch competitions I looked at, several accelerators that I have participated in. And even though sometimes those didn't necessarily bring me dollars, they brought me connections, right? They gave me Mm, someone else who introduced me to someone else who finally got me to a person that wrote a huge check, right? So you never know who you're talking to that may help you in one way or another. And so I think it's really uh, about making sure that you're keeping your eyes open because the opportunities often can exist in places that you're not directly seeing or are not obvious in the very beginning. Absolutely. And I'll emphasize that as well as you never know what network or place you're going to fall into. And uh, even the other day, you know, I had a, a startup in our fund that wasn't the right fit, but there's a network, great business, just not right. Our, not our thesis. And so completely agree with that to, you know, keep the ears and eyes open uh, accordingly. So we're going to stop there for now and we'll move on to the lightning round, but we'll do that after a quick word from our sponsor. If you're an angel or crowdfunding investor, you know how tough it can be to find the right deal flow or syndicate to join. That's where ETF Angels comes into play. As an ETF fund, we pull the best pre-seed level startups together under one umbrella to better diversify your assets and investments. Whether you're a seasoned investor or making your first startup investment, do it with the confidence and support of diverse investors like yourself. Join the investors that have already made the switch by visiting ventureseed.com forward slash communities to learn more and apply. And we're back on DMI with Dr. Claiborne. Now, for those who are not familiar with our lightning round, here's how it's played. We ask our guests two questions, of which one of those questions must be answered correctly in order to win the prize. Now, our guest will have 30 seconds to answer these questions. So, Dr. Claiborne, are you ready to play the lightning round? I'm ready to play. Awesome. Remember, you'll have 30 seconds, uh, so quick answers are best. And here we go. First question, as you may have already known, I mentioned, I'm a UConn alum, you are a Duke alum. And of course, 
I knew how to ask this question. UConn and Duke have met in the NCAA tournament six times. Of those six times, how many were championship games? A, once, B, twice, C, all six times. <laughs> You're going to catch me up here. Um, I think it's only twice. Correct. <laughs> good job. Good job. Okay. The second one's a little easier. You're from the uh, true or false Colorado, uh, Arizona, and New Mexico and Utah are all states that you can visit at the same time, based on where you grew up in Denver, Colorado. Is that true or false? Absolutely true. That's called the Four Corners. It's one of my favorite places to visit. Awesome. Yep. So you got it. And we'll talk about the prizes after. And essentially, you will get uh, some discounts to share with your network for some of our services in our community. And so congratulations. I, kn- I knew the UConn one you- and Duke one you probably get. I was hoping you got it. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> so, no problem. So we'll stay right there and we'll have a final word from our sponsor. Are you an entrepreneur who's trying to grow your business or an investor who wants to better understand the economics of a startup? Well, DMI listeners, subscribe to our VC Opened newsletter where you'll receive some of the best advice on raising capital for your startup all for free. There is no commitment. So go to VCOpened dot ventureseed.com. That's V-C-O-P-E-N-E-D dot ventureseed.com. And we're back and you've been hanging out with Dr. Claiborne. Well, Dr. Claiborne, I want to thank you again for coming on the show and being part of our program. I think we've gained tremendous, incredible value and insights from your journey. So whenever you're ready, I want to end today on DMI with a parting piece of guidance you can provide to our listeners, the best way we can connect with you, and then we'll say sayonara. Awesome, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. Um, I think what is most important and the words that I'd like to complete this episode with are that you as an entrepreneur, uh, a founder, or really an investor, whoever you are, should first and foremost, always be believing in yourself. If you don't believe in yourself, if you're not your your biggest cheerleader, then you cannot expect other people to get behind you and especially not put money behind you. And so I think that that is communicated, whether you say it or not, by the way that you present yourself. And if you don't truly believe it, it's hard for others to believe. And so do whatever it is that you need to do to kind of gain that confidence, step up and understand that you deserve to be at the plate. You deserve to take your swing. And I promise that other people will be more receptive to that when you are presenting yourself with your best face forward. As far as myself, I am very excited for the journey that I'm taking as CEO and founder of Nasaclip. I think that this is going to be a stupendous climb. I plan to exit this company at a significant amount, not only to prove that I can be a really amazing uh, founder and bring this great product to market that's going to help people treat nosebleeds all around the world, but also to then position myself to build that pipeline of capital that can open up doors for other people of color and women who are founding their businesses and need that additional um, kind of in in the very beginning. And I think that when you can see it, you can believe it. And I want to be that example of Black excellence, right? I want to be that thing, that person, that inspiration that other little boys and girls can look at and believe uh, that they can accomplish whatever they put their minds to as well. So if you're interested in following me, please, um, you know, don't hesitate to reach out to me by email. My email address is eclaiborn at nasaclip.com. 
nasaclip.com. Visit our website at nasaclip.com. You can sign up for a 20% discount. We're going onto the market very soon. Uh, and finally, follow us on all of our social media at nasaclip or at Dr. Eliz PC. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, you heard it from Dr. Claiborne herself. I want to thank you again for coming on the show, providing tremendous value to our listeners, and we'll chat soon.